Welcome to AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. We're advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, and research. Welcome to the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons Young Arthroplasty Group Podcast. I'm Anna Cohen-Rosenblum, an academic orthopedic surgeon at Louisiana State University, where our department mascot is an alligator getting paid $100,000 less than the private practice alligators. I have no conflicts of interest with any of authors of any studies or devices we may discuss. I'm Lenny Buller. I'm an employed physician in an academic practice at Indiana University, where the cornfields seem just a little bit greener in private practice. I also have no disclosures to report. I'm Mark Mildren. I'm in private practice in Eugene, Oregon at the Slocum Center for Orthopedics, where we print money right off group trips to large mansions, where I'm currently podcasting from. Jeeves, why is my glass empty? <laughs> I also have no conflicts of interest with authors of these studies or devices discussed. Hi, I'm Jesse Wolfstadt. I'm an academic orthopedic surgeon at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto, Canada, where we all live in igloos. We love to say a boot. And we'd finish every case by drinking a shot of maple syrup straight. I have no personal conflicts of interest regarding this topic, except with those capitalist American dogs. So tonight, we'd like to welcome one of the YAG founding members, Dr. Brad Waddell. So thanks, Brad, for joining us. A little bit about Dr. Waddell. He started out actually in Anna's territory, earning his medical degree from LSU, followed by residency at the Ashna Clinic, and then went on to complete a fellowship at HSS. Tonight, we're talking about jobs. All of us picked arthroplasty as a career, but if you compare each of our day-to-day -day work, I'd venture to say that most of our jobs look quite a bit different. So Brad, I'd like you, if you don't mind, just share with us your path from fellowship or really kind of whenever you picked your first job to where you're at right now. Yeah, so my path has been complicated. I'm sure the reason that I was asked to participate in this podcast. And uh, so my father's an orthopedic surgeon, now retired, and my whole life I'd planned to join his practice in Shreveport. Doing my residency and uh, my fellowship in New York City, my residency in New Orleans, started to see some more of the world. And during my fellowship, started getting job offers and sort of looking at the world in a different light. So I had planned to join my dad's practice until January of my fellowship year when some of the folks at HSS started saying, are you sure? Would you like to join here, stay here, go there? So it, it became an outrageously confusing time for me and my family, my wife, who is such a trooper. And so we definitely found ourselves thinking we didn't want to go back to Shreveport. And so we ended up at Auctioner in New Orleans. George Cimento, the chairman there, has been an incredible mentor. And, you know, one of the things that happened is, is in joining the practice. And, and honestly, every job I've had has been unbelievable. I got asked to come back to HSS. And so my wife being a trooper and us looking to go practice at HSS, we moved up to HSS. And I loved my job at HSS. It was an incredible job. We had some family stuff happen about a year into with our child being there. Felt like we needed to be closer to home. And so a lot of the things, uh, I guess, that we'll touch on tonight, I've sort of lived through. And in realizing we needed to be in the South, we picked a couple of places we thought we would want to be and chose one of those places and ended up getting uh, convinced to make another change. And now I'm here in Dallas at what I consider to be the world's greatest job at the Carroll Clinic. 
And so it's been a wild ride and almost every decision I've made has not been because I didn't necessarily like something. I really do consider myself lucky to have worked at such unbelievable places. And I think I've had some of the best jobs you can have in trying to make the best decisions for our family. We've made some pretty big jumps and now my family's happy and I'm happy. And so the past five years have been a little bit of a ride, but I couldn't be happier now where we are. So you've seen a little bit of private practice now, you've seen academics at the beginning, and you've kind of seen a little bit of the mix. What are some of the big perks to each that you feel like you wish you to have from one versus the other? Or does that make sense? Yeah. The question? No, absolutely. Uh, I am very fortunate to have stepped on one side of the fence, then step in the middle of the fence, HSS sort of being in the middle of private practice and academics. And uh, now having been in private practice for a couple of years, there are strong positives to each. And that's something that sort of I hoped to be able to touch on. Academics provides structure, mentorship, lots of help early on. I look back on my time at uh, Auctioner, which was sort of like another fellowship where I did, I don't know, 300, almost 400 cases. And I think if I remember correctly, over a hundred revisions that first year, it was, uh, honestly, it was, it, was, it was a tough year because you're just starting out, but I had so much help and there was so much structure in the awesome work that uh, George Cimento and Leslie Thomas and all of them had put into making it a structured ordeal that I sort of just fell right into it. And I think you see that in a lot of uh, academic centers where you can sort of ride a wave that's already being taken forward. Certainly there's, there's other examples that aren't as positive. But um, in looking at, at academics, there's a strong positive in the amount of help that you might receive early on, sort of the mentorship that you can receive, and sort of co-mingling with uh, residents and fellows, which is always good, especially early on. Looking at maybe a negative or a different side, you don't have as much control in an employed or, a, or an academic center you can end up being brought into certain changes that you may not have control over. And uh, they're the Titanic, so to speak. You know, big ship, hard, to, hard to, to, to change course easily. And so I think knowing that going into a, an academics job is important. And you guys, in a joking manner, touched on the different financial sort of aspects of each. And I think that, you know, in looking back at that time, there's a significant financial benefit, albeit not monetary in the amount of help that you get. And it's hard to put a price on that where someone takes your first call and maybe even the second call before you get a call about that dislocation or whatever it is. And maybe you hear about it the next day. So there's certain benefits, obviously, that you can't put a price on or a dollar on. But again, certain things you, you just need to, to know going into it, what you're going to expect private practice. I have really enjoyed it, but again, different uh, aspects to it that are, that are both beneficial and non-beneficial. Long-term, there is probably a, a financial incentive upfront to private practice, but that's not necessarily the case. And there's also risk associated with it. And uh, with some of those rewards that you may reap, there's a significant amount of risk. But I think definitely early on in private practice, you can end up even in a very large practice or with folks close to you, end up with needing to make your own way, come up with your own protocols, your own forms. That can be seen as a positive, as I do, where I get to choose how I do this or how I do that or even where I do this or that. 
But again, it comes with the responsibility of having to actually put that together as opposed to a perioperative surgical home already being set up at auctioner where your patients are already in a process where you know they're going to be safe and taken care of. And then in certain private practices, that may not be the case for one hospital, but is the case for another. So with some of the freedom that you get in a private practice, there's certainly increased responsibilities associated with that. Brad, I'm wondering if maybe you could chat a little bit about, you've spoken a little bit already about, you know, your wife being such a trooper through all this, but I was wondering if you could maybe chat a little bit about what the moves have been like for your family. Like you, you, you sort of gone across, you know, across the country for these jobs and sometimes we take for granted the impact that's going to have on our family. So Sure. So the first move from HSS to New Orleans, easy, peachy, no big deal at all. Successive moves become much more difficult on the family uh, doing the same thing again. And so definitely that aspect of it. You know, family obviously is the most important thing to me. And with each decision I've, uh, we've made, we've tried to do what's best for the family. And, and we've learned a lot of lessons, things that we knew were coming, we would deal with. And then many things that we had no idea about, both on a uh, personal family level, how it affects the kids getting into school. It's tough to move in January because school has already been started and all the private schools and all the daycares and all of this have long since been enrolled in. So certainly some eye-opening things with some of the different successive moves. What has been something that maybe you did not anticipate with, first, I guess let's talk about both the jobs. Like, has there been something that maybe you found with these moves that someone that is starting practice might want to look into? Like, I can tell you when I first signed with my job, I didn't look too much into it. I had a lawyer look at the contract, but I had no knowledge about anything. I think it's difficult to ever know fully what you're stepping into. I don't think it's possible to fully know. I think there's some things that you can do to try to help yourself. And I think probably the lowest, so you can have a lawyer or two lawyers look at your contract and you not get a bit of benefit out of that. I think it's wildly important to have the right lawyer look at it, not just any lawyer. Contract lawyers are going to be very different in terms of the way they look at the legal jargon and legalese. And, you know, there's a single word that'll change everything. So I think one thing I've learned is that it wasn't until my most recent move that the right lawyer is incredibly important. And so a contract lawyer, not just any lawyer, I think is important. Probably the most important thing you can do is try to find someone in the group where you're going or potentially going and do whatever it takes to pick their brain as much as possible. You can ask the partners in general. And I think many of us suffer from, for the most part, looking at what we do and where we are in a positive light. And so it can be difficult to pick out those things that may, number one, be a tough pill to swallow, or number two, something you just can't live with at all. So you'll never be able to cover every base, but I think there's certain ways to look, and there's certain warning signs I think you should look at. Um, You know, simple things that we've all heard along the way. If they don't open the books for you, that's a huge warning sign. I think certain warning signs that I've never seen before that people talk about are what's the turnover in the group, both on a physician level and on a staff level? What's the percentage in the hospital? But before we even get to that, are you tied to a certain hospital? Is your group in a PSA? Uh, is your group 
uh, going to allow you to go other places because being tied to a certain hospital decreases your ability to negotiate and deal with certain things that uh, otherwise you might be able to deal with. In those particular hospitals, infection rates and their published infection rates, uh, percentage of agency nurses and staff can be a sign that things are changing in the hospital. So there's all sorts of warning signs that you know can be very difficult to ask, but this is a business and it's a business transaction until it becomes personal after a certain number of years. But even then it's still business and you need to know what's going to, you're going to be getting into because you're going to spend a whole lot of time at each of these places as you guys well know. It's something that's really, that was eye opening to me is that the world can be your oyster as a graduating resident or a graduating fellow. And, you know, if you get on the job websites, there's a job in Hawaii, there's a job in Alaska, there's 14 jobs in Michigan, which say they're the best jobs ever. And then there's jobs just everywhere. You can go anywhere. What is a PSA? Can you define that? Or is that embarrassing that I don't know what that is? So that's for a private practice physician. A physician services agreement is an agreement between a group and a hospital where you can basically sign a deal for certain perks or not perks or certain things uh, to be tied to one group or one hospital. So, you know, again, I didn't know what a PSA was. And these are things that as the world of medicine changes, we all do our advocacy part and we all have heard about this and that. And, you know, I did a health policy fellowship with AUKUS a couple of years ago and had that's not a, a forefront thing that we talk about. We're all starting to hear about private equity getting into the market of referrals and being invested in groups and how that can affect of your group and your group's referral patterns, uh, something I recently just heard about at our most recent advocacy day uh, virtually on the Hill is talking about how private equity is starting to, to get involved. And, you know, you want to know these things because the private equity deals seem to be better for the senior partners and not as great for the younger partners because the, the senior partners are way more invested in the group than the younger partners. But there's all sorts of new negotiations and contracts between private groups and hospitals to always try to take care of patients the best. And some people look through a different lens in what's best for taking care of a patient than other people. And so again, you're going to look through your lens and you want to be sure you know what you're getting into as you look through that lens in a certain system. And if it makes you feel better when he said you should make the practice open the books, I was like, I would have no idea what any of those numbers mean when they open the books. I would look at the books (laughs) and go, those are numbers, then close the book. (laughs) When Jeff and I brought the YAG idea, or at at that time, our little research group's idea to AUKUS, it was for the, the intent of all of us getting together and sharing knowledge. And when Jeff and I were going through it, we were going through boards. So boards was very important to us. And job searching was important to us. And one of the big things it seems we're doing now is sharing the knowledge that we all have and you deserve and and the residents and the fellows deserve to get all of this information, not through the hard way, but uh, hopefully through our get together at AUKUS or our get together at the Academy or these now podcasts that you guys have put together. So there's no, uh, five years ago, I would have looked at the books and said, have no idea. And you can still look at the books and have no idea if you don't know if they're a collections-based, an RVU-based, a percentage of the collections-based once you reach a certain point. And all of those things 
in networking us together can become more normalized as a part of our vocabulary and understanding if we get together. I text on a weekly basis with someone new uh, based on, you know, having gone through the, the Young Archiplasty group and, and started it and sort of given my phone number to everyone. But I text people and, and people email me all the time asking for, hey, what does this mean or what does that mean? And many of the times I have no idea and I get to learn something new as well. And uh, sometimes I get to share knowledge that I've either learned personally or learned through the experience of others. How useful do you think the MGMA salary data is in terms of picking a job or assessing things? I think it is okay. But if you look at how many physicians, there is so much more to that. And I think not really useful at all for me. And again, respectful to if anyone from that entity is listening. I think you'll always see that I try to be respectful to everyone, but it was great to see during residency for what potential I could be in getting into the real world. It's so much more complicated than just a single number because those numbers come from everywhere in private practice and they're negotiable in other practices. And so it can be helpful, but certainly is not your end all be all. And it does not, it's not nearly all inclusive enough. And it's a very small sample size. So Jesse, we just heard about all the jobs around the country that we can pick from. How does it work in Canada? How do you find a job as an orthopedic surgeon? Yeah, it's uh, it's it, it's definitely a little bit more tough. Is it not um, your oyster? It's yeah. The world the world is not quite your oyster. Although I spent seven months in New Zealand doing a trauma fellowship before I came back to Toronto, and it was a little bit easier to get jobs there. Just like it seems to be in. The world is definitely your oyster there. And there seems like there's more jobs there, like in the U.S. more so than in Canada. It's it's tough in Canada. You know, I think there's a bit of a disparity between the number of people that we train and the number of jobs that are available. And then essentially, the you know, the job you need to operate if you want an orthopedic job. And, and the operating time is essentially controlled by, you know, the funding from the provincial government. And, and really the only ways that jobs open up are that miraculously there are new resources, which, you know, never happens because the government just doesn't want to miraculously give us more money to do more joints or more types of orthosurgery. Somebody leaves, which nobody does in Canada because we all seem to stay in, in the same place for our entire 40-year career. Or, you know, the very rare instance where someone leaves for the greener pastures in the U.S. or, you know, decides to retire or, or you know, is, is forced to retire for, you know, potentially health reasons or something like that. So there's, there's just not a ton of jobs and it makes it really anxiety provoking for all of us. Like we're all doing, for the most part, two fellowships before we get employed. You know, beggars can't be choosers. You're lucky if you get a job in many respects. So you mentioned there's some regulation in terms of the volume that you can do as a, a joint replacement surgeon. What's that like? It's frustrating. It's definitely frustrating. So essentially the way it works is it's a single payer system. So uh, each province, uh, you know, your versions of states have their own healthcare plan and they allot however many, you know, types of however many total hips or total knees can be done in a calendar year. And then they sort of based on basically historical practices each individual healthcare system and within like sort of um, local health group. And then within that local health group, the various hospitals are allotted a certain volume of, of joints. And it really, I guess at some point it probably reflected 
what the demand was, but it doesn't change a lot year by year. It changes incrementally, maybe one or 2%. So yeah, no, it's definitely a different system. I mean, I love hearing the differences in the systems. Um, and like Brad sort of said, we all have things that we like and that we don't like our better practice. And, you know, the Canadian healthcare system is great in some ways in other ways it's, it's not great. The wait time is definitely an issue here and it's made even worse by COVID. And even though the demand is rising, the volumes, the allocations are not rising. So, you know, our wait list, you know, there are studies of saying that it's going to take us two, three years to work through our wait list. I mean, we're not even back to full, full steam yet. So our wait list is only growing more and more by the day and will only start to shrink when we get to like 150% capacity or something like that. But the way our system is funded, we're just never going to get there. Pretty sad. Well, let's lighten it up. Uh, I want to put, yeah, yeah. I, I wanna put uh, Dr. Waddell on the spot here as a um, founding member of the Young Arthroplastic Group. Number one, are you proud of us? And number two, do you have any thoughts about where you want to see this group going in the future? Oh, of course, I'm proud of you guys. I mean, I'm here. <laughs> I mean, and that sounds weird because I feel very young myself most of the time. So, you know, absolutely. I mean, what Jeff and I started was this small little group where we were just like texting and emailing and starting research. And then we're given an opportunity and a platform uh, with the help of Josh Kerr and, and the, the AUKUS leadership and everyone. I mean, what we did over a year and a half or two year period trying to get this thing started, you guys have just taken forward, which is incredible to see. I don't know the current numbers of how big it is, but I know it's pretty, pretty darn huge. And then where it goes, I think, is that we continue. And, and you know, one thing that we early on wanted to do, and I hope to see you guys continue to do, is store every bit of the stuff we put out. So for every resident out there to be able to access this at some point and pick up on what a PSA is, or pick up on some little idea that they had no inkling about, and then not reinvent the wheel. We all continuously reinvent the wheel. And again, speaking from an American perspective, and I apologize for my bias and my insensitivity about uh, the pros and cons uh, up there in Canada, uh, we never want to reinvent the wheel. And hopefully this group offers younger surgeons the ability to learn. You know, we're not taught business. We're not taught anything. And hopefully this is a, a, an insight into how to pass your boards, how to pick a good job, how to live with the job you chose, or anything along those lines. Luckily, the Canadians are too polite to be offended, so we're good. That's right. We're set. <laughs> we're, set. we're not going to say anything. Anymore. No, Brad, I, I must say that I have the same feeling about our trainees here, right? Like, there's so, so much unknown, and thanks for all you did to set up this group and, and obviously people like Lenny and Anna and Mark that are carrying this on. And it's just great to get your perspective. So Mark, we heard from Brad, his perspective on some of the positives of private practice. What's your take? So what do you like about private practice? So I will say, and one of the things that I was kind of thinking while Brad was talking and from a academic, so from going into a private practice standpoint, you guys talked about structures, you talked about having mentorship. And I can say that without a shadow of a doubt, that has been the most important thing for me in practice is my private practice is big. It's got, I think, 23 orthopods. I am the fifth joint replacement surgeon. And having older guys and girls, but all the all adult reconstruction are guys, so I'm not being sexist. <laughs> Hashtag he for she, I want those points. It has been just invaluable. Like even if you know the right answer about what to do for a patient, 
going to them and saying, hey, this is what I'm thinking. And they said, yeah, that sounds good. I agree that the mentorship is extremely important, though. Anna, I know that we've spoken a little bit about the benefits of academics. So Brad said, you know, the nice thing about academics is you're going to have mentors there and people to bounce ideas off of. Have you found that that's the case in your practice? To a certain extent. So I definitely run things by my partners a lot, but also as uh, Brad was mentioning earlier, I contact a lot of my peers. And I think that's really important and something that I want to emphasize, you know, for our other members of YAG is like texting with co-fellow or just peers I know from YAG or from the women orthoplasty group, just constantly having uh, people at different stages of their career to run things by and for mentorship purposes. So I think what, regardless of what practice type you're in, I think it's important to maintain those relationships because those have, have been really beneficial for me over the years. Yeah, and I, I would agree. You know, obviously, I, I typically in an academic, and I said, you know, there's not everything has everything, but no question in the group I'm in, there are four of us that do arthroplasty and the mentorship is outrageously amazing in our private practice. And so it's something to look for. I think it's something to know you're going to live without. I text, so, you know, there were, I had, I had seven co-fellows. There were eight of us at HSS and four of us are on a text chain where we send at least 15 messages a week, 20 messages a week, where we're constantly back and forth talking. And that is so beneficial. I think that's something else that, uh, you know, as, as Annie, you were saying that the YAG can do is put you in touch with folks who are going through the same thing that you're going through. And it's sometimes helpful to run something by one of your peers, as opposed to running to a mentor at first, or someone who, you know, you may not feel as comfortable sharing everything. And sometimes that that first or second uh, problem you have, it's good for a peer to talk you through it. And then eventually, you'll be comfortable just sharing everything with obviously your mentors as I am and saying, can't believe this, can't believe that. And I think it's important for us to all know that boy, those things are going to happen and happen a whole lot. I found it so much easier to solve other people's problems. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I think sometimes it just helps to have somebody with a more objective eye just to go through something you're dealing with. And the this, this solution can be pretty simple, but it doesn't occur to you right away because you're kind of enmeshed in it. No question. Did you know before you joined Slocum that you were going to have such good mentors? How can you find out that before that, especially in a private practice where I feel like it's yeah. ultra competitive, now you're their competitor. How do you know that they're actually going to have your best interest at heart. Yeah. So uh, it was interesting. I interviewed with one group and I sat down with one of the other joint replacement guys and kind of talked with him about um, what his practice was like. And he made a, a comment during it that, you know, maybe he wasn't as busy as he liked. And to me, that was like a huge red flag of like, shoot, okay, this is, he is still um, looking to get busier. If there's a new guy coming in, you know, that, that relationship may be strained a little bit from the get-go just because he wasn't as busy as he wanted. When I met with the guys, again, guys, uh, yeah. When I met with it's the- It's okay, ortho- dude. We, when- <laughs> we know what the world is. We well, you know, but I feel like the, the guys, I, you know, I instinctively say guys, I'm trying to change that. So instead, when I met with the orthopods that are the adult reconstruction surgeons at the current practice, um, everyone was really cordial. They asked, you know, how was your day? What did you, um, you know, what did you learn? Uh, this is why we're looking for a new joint replacement guy. Um, and just the relationships there, I never got a sense of I was seen as competition. 
Um, and so that was, I think, the most important thing to me was making sure that I wasn't putting them out by joining the group because I feel like that really kind of strains that relationship and you need, you need mentorship from the get-go and a, you know, uh, the orthopods in my practice, especially the adult reconstruction ones are just phenomenal human beings. And I have gone to them so often with just, you know, what do I do with this? What do I do with this? You know, how can you help out? And I've never got a sense of like, shoot, the young guy's coming to us again. And a little bit of it was just a gestalt from the sit down meeting that we had uh, after the interview. And we went out to dinner and we kind of sat and talked through stuff. And it was always seen as a, we want a, you know, we want me to join the practice. We want this guy to come in and not a shoot. He's going to, you know, take away from my earnings. Thank you to our guest and founding young arthroplasty group member, Dr. Brad Waddell for joining us today. Make sure to visit the YAG website on aahks.org for information on how to join YAG and AUKUS, a great resource for arthroplasty surgeons. If you're active on Twitter, follow us at at AUKUS underscore YAG. Thank you for joining us for AUKUS Amplified. Visit aahks.org to learn more about how members of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, and investigate in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.